Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Bikes for Death podcast. My name is Patrick, and I'm your host. I'd like to remind you that this show is 100% listener-supported. As we go into a new year, like many of you, I am making goals, and I have three goals for this podcast. Number one, I'm going to try like hell to produce 50 shows this year, so that's basically one a week. I'm going to give myself a few sick days, um, but basically I'm going to try to put out one a week. Uh, number two, I really want to get the van mobile podcasting studio up and running. I want to get it out there in the field and interviewing great guests. And number three, I want to focus on continuing the listener supported aspect of this show. If you've been following along, you'll know that I have been pushing to keep this show free from advertising. And I thought I'd just explain why. In this day and age, we are just inundated in every direction by consumerism, by someone telling you, you know, what you should buy, where you should live, what kind of car you should drive, what kind of clothes you should wear, yada, yada, yada. I mean, the Facebook algorithms and everything else that's just designed to basically sell you something. How long can we keep your attention? I want to keep your attention too, but I want to do it because of great content and I want ideally the listener to value the content that's here and appreciate it enough to show your support. So those are three really big goals this year. And obviously none of them can happen without your support. If you can appreciate the value of the show and the efforts that I'm making to produce a quality show with amazing guests and bring you into the lives of some of these people that we hear about or watch videos or watch their dots and and even some people that you may not be familiar of. I like to hear stories from all walks of life and all levels of uh, interest and capabilities in the sport. It's been an amazing ride so far. I've been very grateful for the support that I have received. And so thank you. It's not that I'm ungrateful. It's just that I got plans and I want to grow this thing and I can't do it without you. So if you will take a moment either right now or after the show, head over to bikesordeath.com and you can sign up as a Patreon, which is a sustaining member of the show. You can also give a one-time donation on PayPal. You can also find out about the GoFundMe that's set up right now to finance the mobile podcasting studio. And there is a raffle to go along with that. And we're giving away prizes at every $1,000, $2,000, $3,000, and $5,000. We're already at like $2,035, I think. And so I've already given away some great prizes. I appreciate everybody that's donated that so far. And lastly, of course, you can always just uh, buy some merchandise. I've got some new shirts on the way. Those will be in stock here in about a week or two. And uh, you can just rep the show and make everybody else jealous. So it doesn't matter how, but please go over to bikesfordeath.com, find a way to support the show, and let's keep this show going and growing strong into the new year. And as always, don't forget to head over to iTunes and leave a five-star review. That's how other people find it, and that makes me happy. All right, well, today's guest uh, is a special one. I think I say that every week. It's Roger Gillis. He is an author of the book, Women on the Move. I've referred to this book a few times in previous episodes. Um, one of my personal uh, relatives is uh, featured in the book. Her name is Dottie Farnsworth, which is the reason I picked it up initially. Um, but as I read it, it became so much more than just her story. It really opened up my eyes to how 
amazing our sport is, how long it's been around, how integral to our society it has been, both for men and for women. Uh, but this book focuses on the women primarily, and it tells a story that I think very few actually know. He refers to it as the forgotten era of cycling. And I think he's exactly right. As a lifelong cyclist, I'd never heard any of these stories. I didn't even know I was related to one of them. Um, so I'm very grateful that he put a book together with some valuable information so that we can all have that. And I'm glad that he was just willing to sit down and talk to me. It was such an honor. All right. Well, I think that's it. So uh, what do you say we get to the show? You load up your bike, you ride away from home. You could be with your friends or you could be alone. You ride for a day or maybe more. You just love being in the great outdoors. Everything you need is strapped to your bars, including that new pillow you got from Santa Claus. And then you think, oh shit to yourself. You left that super lightweight tent on the living room shelf. Bikes. All right. Well, tonight I am uh, joined by a special guest, one that I've been looking forward to a long time, uh, author Roger Gillis. Uh, he is the author of Women on the Move. And uh, I found out about this book when I was watching a documentary called Bicycle that I believe was released in 2014. And I was watching that show and they mentioned Dottie Farnsworth. And I happen to be Patrick Farnsworth. And so I really like cued in on that. And uh, so I started, you know, obviously researching her and and turns out like, I did the research. Actually, my mom did the research. Uh, Dottie is my sixth cousin, three times removed. As far as I was concerned, that was good enough to get her tattooed on my leg. So I got a Dottie tattoo uh, on my leg now. <laughs> I'll have to send you a picture of that. Um, but yeah, and so it was like, God, a week or two after I saw that documentary where your book came out, Women on the Move. Um, so if you could, real quick, let's go back. I'd like to hear about your personal uh, history in, in cycling before we get into the book. Okay, well, I have to say that there's not much there. Uh, I was just a casual cyclist. I've never had a particular interest in cycling other than uh, recreational cycling around the house and riding around town. and. Uh, all of this material really just fell into our lap. I say our because it was really my wife who discovered the material first. Okay. And then I took it over a few years after that. But um, my all of my knowledge of and interest in cycling is in, you know, wrapped up in researching and writing this book. Right. So uh, what was it about this story that really um, grabbed your attention and made you want to actually tell it? Well, let me start by talking about how my wife got into it. So yeah, please. We live in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and about 12 or 15 years ago, my wife was in a the women's room of a pizza cafe here in town, and she saw on the wall of the restroom an old postcard, and the postcard was from the early 20th century, and it was harkening back to a time when Tilly the Terrible Swede, it said, had visited Grand Rapids in 1897, rather, and was giving a bicycling exhibition. And it said that during the, in the postcard, it said that Tilly Anderson, actually it said Tilly the Terrible Swede only, was the fastest bicyclist of her sex. 
Well, it turns out that my wife is a children's book author and she likes to focus her picture books on strong women in history. So she thought, who is this Tilly the Terrible Swede? And so she looked into her. This was about 2007 or 2008. She looked into Tilly and found out that she was Tilly Anderson and that she was a famous bicycle racer back in the 1890s. Right. And she did nothing about her. At that time, very little had been written about Tilly. Well, fast forward three years, my wife published a children's book with Random House, or a cannot for children, uh, about Tilly. And in the process of publishing that book, Sue, my wife, got in touch with a woman named Alice Repke in Kansas, who was Tilly Anderson's grandniece. And she had been trying to uh, get Tilly's story out into the public for decades, really, yeah. and had, been, had mixed success about that. And so Alice found out that Sue was writing this book and was very excited about it and ended up sharing a lot of information with Sue that helped the book. But it was a children's book, so there wasn't a whole lot there um, mm-hmm. in terms of content. So there was all this content, you know, just kind of sitting there. And when we met Alice finally, and I saw that she had four volumes of scrapbooks, she had a trunk load of photographs and memorabilia and letters. Uh, she even had, she had her, Tilly's old bicycle. She had uh, the old racing outfit. And it, I'm a writing professor, um, no interest particularly in cycling, but I w- I'm interested in writing and I'm interested in stories. And I thought somebody has to write this book. Yeah. And I just volunteered. And so that's <laughs> how I. That's interesting. So just out of curiosity, how does that work? Uh, does Allison like own that story or, uh, or she was just integral to getting some of the information that you needed to be able to write the book? Well, I mean, there's no way this book could have been written without Alice's material. Um, I mean, there's a lot of material in archival newspaper articles for sure. And I did a lot of search, um, but there are hundreds and hundreds of articles that she had in her scrapbooks that are no longer available in any archive, either in microfilm or, or in digital format. So there's just no way this book could have been written. Plus Alice had all these great photographs that I think really make the book a lot better. And um, there are actually a lot more that we could put in there. Yeah. Um, now the photographs so, go a long way to really uh, tell the story of what, yeah. what America looked like and what right. conditions were like. And just, it really paints the whole picture for you. I, th- I think what comes across in those photos is that it was both a very long time ago and it wasn't that long ago. You know, yes. we're talking about the 1890s. Um, anyway, I made the decision early on, uh, whatever, um, whatever contract we signed with a book, Alice and I would, would just be 50, 50, uh, not co-authors because I wrote the book, right. but she is a equal contributor. So we've been sharing all of the, um, sharing the, royalties or whatever we get from the book uh, are, yeah. are equal, equal to us. Yeah. Well, it's a great story. So I'm glad that she was able to retain that stuff and and get it in somebody's hands that could tell that story. And the story was well told. Um, I have to ask, I'm curious, how did you approach it? Um, not being necessarily a hardcore cyclist per se, or having a lot of background historicity on cycling. How did you approach it as an author? Well, I think I was lucky actually not being a, a, a serious cyclist because I, I think I understood that a casual reader, and I do think that I was aiming for a, a casual reader, someone who's interested in history, women's history, sports history, bicycling history, or just bicycling, um, 
there's just so much background information that's needed to understand what was unique about that racing. And my struggle as a writer was not to start the book with a hundred pages of background <laughs> before we started on some kind of story. That's a um, good point. And I, I struggled with it. I, I had three or four different versions of the structure of the book, um, trying to figure out how do I start this? That's both a narrative beginning and a way uh, allows me to tell uh, the development, for example, from the old high wheel bicycle to the, what they call the safety bicycle, which is the modern day bicycle. Right. Uh, these women in the 1890s raced on the safety bicycle, and it's very much like the bicycles people ride on today. Um, but most people, when they think 19th century bicycling, they see that old penny farthing or the uh, the, the high wheel bicycle. And so um, just to understand that the revolution that occurred in the early 1890s when they went to the pneumatic tire and the chain driven gearing um, that allowed bicycles to go so much faster and also allowed races to go so much longer because the tires were so much better. Um, and so to explain all that in a succinct way while still telling the story was the big challenge. And actually yeah. what I ended up doing was telling the story of how my wife saw that postcard <laughs> and how I it's material. And then I started with the very first race of Tilly Anderson's career. And so I really make her the, um, the vehicle, I guess, for telling the story of those. Women. Yeah. Well, she was, a pretty, I mean, especially from your telling, a central fair figure to, um, well, not even from your telling, but all the newspaper articles and all the races she won and uh, quite entertaining uh, for sure. Um, so why don't you set the stage for us, if you will? Uh, what, what did women's bike racing look like in the very beginning when it was just getting started? What was the climate like socially and what just set a, set a stage for us of what that looked like? Well, let me go back for a moment to the sure. 1880s when women were racing on those high wheels. Um, the high wheel bicycle was not a fast bicycle. It was essentially a novelty uh, machine because it was uh, an awkward ride people could go, you know, 15, 16, 17 miles an hour on it at top speed. Um, over any amount of time, they would average 11 or 12 miles an hour. And um, the, the reason that women raced essentially was so that audiences could see women on such a machine. It was just the, a, the novelty of seeing a woman climb on such a machine and ride around and be athletic. Yeah. Um, you know, there wasn't, there were no, women's athletics before the 1880s. I mean, just, it just didn't exist. So these 1880s women were really the first women to, to be athletic in front of an audience, but they were still viewed primarily as a kind of a circus act. And I mean, some people would argue with that a little bit, but they were, it really was a novelty and the, and the show was watching women race. Right. Whereas in the 1890s, when the safety bicycle came in, now the bicycle was fast. They could ride 25, 26, 27 miles an hour at top speed, and they got as fast as 30 and 32 miles an hour sometimes. Um, and they could average 20, 22 miles an hour over a two or three hour time period. So they could right. really ride fast. So now it wanna... was watching women race as opposed to watching women ride. And so it made the sport quite different. But probably the most important thing to understand about the sport, as I reported it, is that this was an arena sport. 
So this was not a an outdoor field sport where they would do road racing. And these women did do road racing too. But for the most part, it was an arena sport where they would get together and or, um, uh, stage a race in an arena, build a wooden track. It was banked all the way around. It was usually 16, 17 laps per mile. So it wasn't much bigger, very much like uh, the kind of track you see at a YMCA that people run around on. Mm -hmm. Not a very big track. And so with that bank track and with five or six women riding around at 20 miles an hour, uh, it was very much, I call it roller derby on bikes. They were, they were jostling with each other. They were pushing each other. They would crash all the time. Um, but they were, it was neck and neck racing. And so they were racing around these tracks. The crowds were going nuts. They were seeing women not only uh, being athletic, but also being extremely competitive with one another. And like I said, pushing each other and crashing. Yeah. And then at the end of two or three hours, uh, they would the race would often come down to what we would call now a photo finish. They didn't have cameras then, but they had, they had cameras, but they didn't have camera finishes, but they would have <laughs> a neck finish. And they would argue about who won, and they would argue about uh, who elbowed whom. And uh, so it was it was quite an entertainment. Yeah. How much of, how much, I mean, I don't know if we know this, but how much of their motivation to go out there and race fast and be so aggressive uh, was spurred on by, you know, expectations of women at that time. I mean, they, I assume had to have a huge chip on their shoulder, just wanting to go out there and prove all the naysayers wrong. Yeah. Well, that's a really interesting question. Um, first of all, I should point out that most of the women and Dottie, your relative might be an exception on this, but most of the women were working class women. And so their primary interest was in making money. And they got paid well to race, to do these races. Um, uh, a typical first prize purse for a week-long race, they would race two or three hours a night over six days. A typical winner's purse was $200 or $250. And the second place person would get $150. And this was at a time when a, a family, a working-class family might make six or $800 a year. So yeah. they were making $200 in a week. And they would race 15, 20 times in a year. So they were making thousands of dollars a year compared to the hundreds of dollars a year they were making as seamstresses or laundry workers or restaurant workers. So they were driven by that money, but they were also, of course, athletes. And this is what makes it so interesting is that they were, I think they were torn in a way or maybe equally motivated by the fact that they were experiencing something that was not available to women before them which is to be competitive athletes. But they also very much wanted to make the money. They didn't care much about the larger social situation. I don't think they consider themselves feminists. They, I don't have any evidence that they were interested in the women's movement or anything like that. But they became symbols of that women's movement because right. they were getting out in front of people, making a living. They were challenging um, the social mores that said that the male was the one who earned a living and the women did not. These women, if they had husbands, their husbands were in the support role, Yeah, you know, helping them make the living for that family. Um, yeah, they so, were what the manager, the, the mechanic, right. the starter, the everything, right? <laughs> that's right. Um, now, there was definitely a, um, 
there were there were a lot of sexual politics going on because there was not just women's racing, of course, but there was also men's racing. So yeah, uh, there was there was a, a a lot of social interactions going on around the women who were primarily interested in racing and making money. Yeah, I know uh, you do mention that Tilly was very vocal about uh, just being there for the money. And there was one race where uh, they announced, I think like during the race or something, that there wasn't going to be a purse. And she just stopped uh, riding and went out into the uh, uh, stands and just took her seat. Said, okay, not going to pay it. I'm not going to race. Yeah, actually, I hate to correct you there, Patrick, but I that was actually Lizzie who was another oh. one of the racers. Lizzie Glaw? <laughs> Lizzie Glaw? Lizzie Glaw was, uh, she was the epitome of the racing, the, the person that was in it for the money. And she was the one who, if the money wasn't there, she was not interested in racing. Now, Tilly, I think, was an example of somebody who really wanted to be, and she was ahead of her time in this way. I think she really wanted to be a first-rate athlete, and she very much wanted to be remembered as a great athlete. And I think that's one of the reasons why Alice wanted to keep her memory alive. And one of the reasons why I wanted to make Tilly a feature of the book, because it was so important to Tilly to be remembered as a great woman athlete. And as you know, I make the, I try to make the case in the book that these were the first great American women athletes. Yeah. And I think it's hard to argue with that really. I mean, what they were accomplishing, especially with all the adversity is pretty incredible. I want to circle back to, um, well, why don't you, if you will, uh, talk about the way that the tracks were built, uh, especially in the very beginning. I think I recall in your book, uh, you talking about, you know, them finding like scrap wood almost around and then and then throwing these tracks together and then they would come and race on them. So you're not talking about a perfectly polished track. Uh, there's nails, there's, you know, m- maybe you could like talk about what that was like because... What I'm so fascinated by, and I think people will be really interested, you know, cyclists will be really interested in is uh, the endurance side, the the speeds that they were maintaining, the days that they were going, the miles, uh, and they were doing it on these tracks. <laughs> so the context here is that um, men had what was called six-day races, and the six-day races uh, took place on tr- well-built tracks, often permanent tracks. And they would race basically 24 hours a day, starting uh, Monday at midnight, Sunday into Monday at midnight, and then go all the way till Saturday night. And over the course of that six-day race, uh, audiences would come and go, but the men would keep on circling the track. They would <laughs> eat on the bike. They would uh, sometimes uh, sleep in the infield and then race some more. And so when the women started racing, they took on that six-day format, but they shortened the races to only two or three hours a day. Um, Throughout all of the beginning of the or the development of the women's racing, there was a constant kind of tension between seeing the women as, again, a novelty, seeing it as an entertainment or as a circus act almost, not taking it very seriously. And the women primarily and their managers taking it seriously and thinking of it as a sport. So on the not serious side, the the people who built the tracks thought there's no reason for them to race on a permanent track. They're only women. Or let's just build a, a slipshod track um, because they're only women and they're not trying that hard. So it doesn't matter if it's in great shape. So the tracks ended up, as you say, often being thrown together, uh, usually just for the week they raced. And then at the end of the week, it would get torn down and sold for scrap. And so 
often there were imperfections on the track. Sometimes they were banked too much. Sometimes they weren't banked enough. Sometimes the women were limited at what speed they could go because if they rode faster than 25 miles an hour, they would go right off the edge. Um, oh, so wow. they were by the quality of the track. Sometimes they were 14 laps to a mile. Sometimes they were 22 laps to a mile. So they, sometimes they were tiny tracks. So there, there was this constant kind of battle to legitimize the sport by taking the tracks seriously. But the irony of it is that those small tracks and the steeply banked tracks, they were much smaller than the men's because they had to fit into smaller arenas because, again, they, didn't, they weren't sure if the women would draw the big crowds. So they went to smaller arenas. Sometimes theaters or auditoriums, so they squeeze the track in there. Because of that, they were able to get that whipsaw effect of racing on a steeply banked track. Mm. And they ended up riding faster than the men because they, they learned how to ride on those bikes. Um, they adjusted the bicycles, of course, for it too. They raised the pedals up so it wouldn't hit the side of the track on the bank. Um, they shortened up the bicycles so that they would be more nimble on those small tracks. Um, and so they, they basically became unique athletes in that they were the only ones in the world that could ride on those bicycles because they got trained on those kinds of bicycles. Um, so it was just a really interesting kind of uh, uh, conflagration of, of the of, of circumstances that created the sport, which by 1897 or 1898, began to settle into expertise. And now they were building more serious tracks. They started to go much faster even. And um, they were more serious about timing it. And they were more serious about, um, for example, early on, they would often bring in local racers that weren't very good because they thought, well, we'll draw in more people if we have a local person. And so sometimes they would have uh, three or four racers who were quite good and, and had and race other times. And then two people who had never raced on a track before. And they would slow things down, of course, and they would get in the way and sometimes cause yeah. accidents. By 1897 or 1898, that was 1895 or 1896, by 1897 or 1898, they would no longer do that. They would just have the professionals on the track. And so they became much better. Yeah. I want to real quick go back because you mentioned the men's racing. And I think uh, if I understand or, or remember correctly, uh, the contrast between the men's racing and the women's racing helped to popularize women's uh, racing even more so than the men's. Is, am I remembering that correctly? You are, yeah. Um, again, it's ironic, but in the 1880s with those high wheels, really the only interesting kind of race with a high wheel bicycle is an endurance race because it was not a sprinting machine. Mm. It, just, it wouldn't work to have sprints. I mean, they, they had them actually, but for the most part, the big races were these six-day races where they raced around the clock. And because of a lack of imagination or whatever, uh, when they moved over to the safety bicycle or the regular modern bicycle, they continued with those endurance races. That, that was what bicycle racing was. They would right. race six days a week and do an endurance race. And when the, these male managers and uh, race promoters and track builders started to uh, promote women's racing, they just assumed, okay, the women are not as strong. They are not as athletic. So we'll shorten the race to two or three hours a day. Um, for no other reason than they thought that's what the women could handle. And, and because they had to squeeze into these smaller arenas, they made the banks steeper. The men's banks were only like 15 or 20 degrees. Bank. Yeah. 
because they had there were larger tracks. And so by shortening the races, they allowed the women to basically sprint for two hours or for three hours in a night, yeah. whereas the men were pacing themselves. And by banking the tracks, they allowed the women to to race in tightly uh, packed bunches, which was very exciting. Whereas the men, I, I, as I say in the book, the men's races, sometimes the, a man would win by 65 miles over <laughs> the course of a week. You know, it wasn't much of a finish. You knew who was going to win by Wednesday of a, of a six-day yeah. race. It was just a war of attrition. Whereas, it was just a war of attrition. And, and whereas the, with the women, they were neck and neck every night, and you never know who was going to win. And it basically came down to who was going to crash and or be unable to get up after the crash. Um, and so it became a much better sport. So what happened, I mean, probably the most surprising thing early on in my research was realizing that these women were drawing thousands of people per night. And uh, there's a Chicago finale race where they, they drew 12,000 people in an arena in Chicago. Um, so it's a huge number of people that were very interested in these races and paying money in order to watch women compete in sports. Yeah, that's and, crazy. I mean, especially if you think about where women were at, and I think we should talk about the Victorian society. Is that what it's called? The Victorian society that was, yeah. uh, putting out publications in the paper about, you know, these snarling women and how there's no way that they can, uh, participate without, uh, becoming grotesque and, uh, you, you can talk to it better than I can, but, uh, that was going on at this time period, right? Yeah. So in the, in the kind of common imagination, any athletic activity was dangerous to women. I mean, this was a time when in that physical education was a radical concept. They were just beginning to ask girls in school to play, uh, 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 tennis on lawn tennis or croquet um, and to do a little bit of track and field they were doing a very early and very lame version of basketball you know just not much was happening they swimming skating things like that but just just the idea of physical education was um, questionable uh, to sit on a bicycle and exert yourself for two hours was considered almost suicidal i mean they they really thought that these women were uh, probably never going to be able to bear children. They would probably shorten their lives. Mm -hmm. um, certainly, they would be. They would coarsen themselves and make themselves unattractive by becoming muscular and athletic. Again, these are working class women, so I think they thought, whatever. I, you know, it's kind of like we marvel sometimes at our NFL players who might be threatening their long term brain health by playing this sport, but they're making millions of dollars, and at some level, they're making this calculation. You know, it's worth it. I'm, I'm 25 years old and I'm rich and yeah. I'm famous. And so, yeah, I might suffer when, it, when I'm in my fifties, but I will take that when it comes. Yeah. Um, they felt that they might be endangering their lives by doing this racing, but it was worth it. Now, as we know now, it turns out, no, they were not endangering their lives. They were uh, making themselves healthier. So they had the last laugh, but, but during that time, it was in the interest of the elite culture, if you will, to, make sure that these women did not become role models for the average woman. So there were articles that would show, uh, usually again, ironically, through etchings as opposed to photographs because they didn't really publish many photographs in the newspapers back then. So they would have an etching, an artist's rendition of a woman's face uh, who had been racing. 
and show how ugly it was. And so they would sometimes pair, you know, here she was before the race, Dottie Farnsworth before the race. Dottie was very pretty. And then after the race, and the artist would basically just make her ugly. <laughs> yeah. You know? And that was the evidence that they gave that, that racing was ruining these women. Um, but, but they also, um, these were pioneer women who started to appreciate the fact that they had muscles and that they felt strong. And it would, it would make the journalists recoil sometimes to learn that these women were not ashamed of the fact that they had muscles and that they actually felt good about it. And they would train by wrestling and boxing and, and wow. lifting weights. They would train by riding, doing 25 mile uh, rides in town uh, every day so they could get in shape for their races. And so they became, you know, uh, pioneer athletes in a way that, uh, um, you know, matches what people do today. Yeah, they were, uh, they were legit athletes. I mean, traveling around, I mean, there was a lot of fanfare going on around the sport. Um, I, I do want to say though, because what you were talking about with, uh, with the, you know, the, the, uh, the artist renderings in, in the papers, uh, one of my favorite stories is I think it was Tilly, uh, had, what five guys in a room and she showed them her leg and uh, there was a doctor there and a couple journalists. Uh, that is one of my favorite stories from the whole thing because it really does uh, just really show uh, where we were at as a society. Um, so maybe if you could tell that in your own words, I'd love to hear it. Yeah. So, you know, like, the subtitle of the book is the, the forgotten era of women's bicycle racing. And it's true that this era has been forgotten for the most part through the 20th century and into the 21st. But one story that kind of lingered into the 20th century was that leg article story, because uh -huh. that was published in a St. Louis paper, um, which is a big city, certainly back then it's a big city. Um, and it's so interesting and shocking in a way, but basically what they did was they, uh, went to her hotel room, as you say, and uh, wanted to examine a woman's muscular leg and see what has happened to her body as the result of a couple of years of professional bicycle race. And, it, you know, essentially the doctor found that anatomically speaking, scientifically speaking, her leg was in terrific shape. It was uh, well-formed, muscular, um, visible veins <laughs> where you could see that their blood flowed uh, well in the leg and uh, well-formed and kind of beautiful, yeah. but beautiful sense of a science textbook. Whereas in the, in the uh, kind of style of the day, aesthetically, it was an ugly leg. And that what the, the, a beautiful leg, a woman's leg back then was one that was um, smooth, no musculature, uh, no, no, no hardening, to it. And so the point of the article basically was to show uh, how grotesque a leg would become. And, but it caused such a sensation back then that it was reprinted all over the country. Uh, women were talking about it all over. Um, it was shocking enough just to have the, a, a, a drawing of a woman's naked leg, because this was a time in Victorian society when women wore skirts that went down to the ground. Mm. And it was it was actually a whole nother level of shocking that these races occurred with women racing in tights. 
So they would show their bodies in the races too. And I'm sure many of the men and women went to the races in part to see these women in these outfits. Oh yeah. Just, just there was one news article. I remember where they were talking about between the, uh, the shorts that one of the ladies was wearing and her tights, it had uh, separated about an inch. And the the guys in the audience were just hooting and hollering and carrying on because they could see a little bit of skin. That's right. Well, the women uh, were, were not allowed to wear, they had to wear sleeves that went all the way down to their wrists because they couldn't show their arm skin. So it wasn't, it was, it was a very conservative society when it came to showing women's bodies. The women, to their credit, refused to wear the baggy pantaloons of the 1880s, but wanted to wear sleek outfits. So they did wear the woolen, basically woolen jerseys and woolen bicycle shorts with tights underneath it. Um, so you could definitely tell that they were women by the shape of their body, but um, but the skin was not allowed to be shown. So when they would fall and tear the, the hose and they wanted to keep racing and um, so that you could see the skin, uh, it was all the better for the audience. And the men did hoot and holler about it. <laughs> uh, how often were they wrecking? I mean, I know that, I mean, flats, uh, I mean, how, how do you have any sense for how frequently, how, uh, how tough, I mean, other than the physical and the endurance side, which is really impressive, just how tough these ladies really were. Uh, there were so many stories about, you know, they'd fall down and within like two laps, they were back up and they were going again and, you know, that kind of stuff. How often were they falling? Well, I, I think it was unusual really for a woman to go through a two or three hour heat without falling. They, they pretty much fell every, every night. And, and, and it was, yeah. And, you know, sometimes they were relatively easy falls and sometimes they were hard falls, but um, you mentioned the two or three lap allowance, uh, again, with the six day races of the men's, if somebody was going to win by 65 miles by the end of the week, if people dropped out. It wasn't a big deal. And in fact, people dropped out on purpose. They took a break. So when women's racing first began, even with the shortened format, it never occurred to the race promoters to have an allowance for falls. And that, and then they realized if a woman fell and was the only one who fell and everyone else lapped her, she would lose the race because the, the women's races were so close. So they inter- instituted this rule where generally it was 30 to 60 seconds they had to recover, either get a new bicycle if they had a flat tire or get a new bicycle if they wrecked the bicycle or just get back on the bicycle. And if they did that within a lap or two, they would not, it would not be counted against them. Um, so part of the entertainment then was to see if a woman who fell obviously hurt herself. You could see her scrape against the board. Sometimes they would get bloody elbows. Or you could see a strawberry on their thigh or whatever. Um, sometimes they would uh, sprain their uh, wrists or even break bones um, to see if she could get up within 40 seconds or 30 seconds and get back on her bicycle. And once they got back on their bicycle, sometimes you could see that they were recovering, you know, kind of wobbly for a little while because they were trying to get back into the swing of things. Um, but the easy falls were the ones where a woman would slip because she was trying to go too fast or trying to cut too fast and just slide and, and, and fall on the boards. The hard ones was, was when two or three women got tangled up and all went down together. And they would sometimes get hurt by the other person's pedals or their handlebars or something like that. And so sometimes there were severe injuries 
uh, broken collarbones or lacerations. Um, sometimes the reporters describe the lacerations as being, you know, three inches long and a half inch deep, you know, so they, they, they would definitely get hurt. Um, and as, as you know, uh, ultimately your relative Dottie Farnsworth uh, died from internal bleeding uh, that turned into blood poisoning as a result of falling on, on a bicycle. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious actually to get, since you brought that up, your perspective on that, because, um, uh, how did that, how did her dying impact, um, any of the progress that was made by women? Because uh, as we've talked about, um, not only are they showing that women are physical, they are strong, um, but you know these society ideas of what a woman can and cannot do are just uh, being broken down all the way to the clothes that they can wear. I mean, uh, so how how did her death impact that progress, if any? So when when my wife Sue wrote her book, and when I start, first started to do the research into my book, the story that we received was that. Women's bicycle racing started in 1895. This this new era, the the safety era of women's bicycle racing started in 1895 and then ended in 1902 when Dottie Farnsworth died as a result of injuries in a race. And that Dottie's death was the reason for banning women's racing. It's a good story and I believed it. But in my research, I realized that that really wasn't the way it happened. there are lots of reasons why women's racing died out in 1902. And in some ways, men's racing died out as well, although men's racing recovered fairly quickly in the 19-teens and 20s. But um, Dottie had already left the sport, partly because she had gotten married and wanted to be closer to her home in Minneapolis. and, and partly because she was getting older, she was 27 or 28 by then. And um, so she was actually racing with a circus and doing an exhibition kind of racing where they were racing on a very tiny track. Uh, they called it a, a cycle world or, or loop-de-loop kind of thing where they would just ride around on a small, very small track, almost 90 degree uh, angle, you know. Um, but she did fall on the bicycle and did get a, a injury. But that was pretty much at the exact same time in June of 1902 when the very last women's races were occurring. And there may have been a connection made in the newspapers, um, but um, there was not a causal connection there. But for, for whatever reason, it did get reported. I, I found a 1941 article, for example, in Chicago that said women's racing was finally banned because of the death of a racer. So that, that got into the popular imagination somehow, but I couldn't really find the evidence for that. Yeah. Well, I was interested uh, to hear that because when I watched that documentary Bicycle, that was the story that they told was uh, Dottie's death was kind of like the nail in the coffin to women's racing. Uh, But when I read your book, um, there was a lot of other things going on at the time, Uh, probably the automobile being one of the largest. And then uh, some of the uh, politics and racing got in the way and uh, there was uh, less interest because they thought that uh, it was all kind of set up and uh, they were just putting on a show and they weren't really uh, going after it, so to speak. Um, so yeah, I was curious because I've heard, go ahead. 
Well, I was going to say what what one thing did get banned, and that was twenty four hour racing. Six day races were banned, but they were the men's races, and and part of the reason they were banned is because the men, in order to compete twenty four hours a day for six straight days, were doing all manner of drugs and uh, you know uh, abusing themselves in all sorts of ways in order to finish the races. And it was such a spectacle; it was a ghoulish kind of display of human endurance that it was they in fact a commentator said it's worse than boxing and at that time boxing was bare-fisted boxing and Mm -hmm. said it's worse than watching a boxing match because these human these these men are just killing themselves by right racing so in 1898 or 1899 some state legislature started to ban six-day racing so they said there's you cannot race any more than 12 hours a day that was the law so because it's abusive to race more than 12 hours a day so I think that the banning of men's 24-hour six-day races and then the demise of women's racing kind of got conflated. So the banning of, of six-day races, women were racing six days too, but they were racing two or three hours a day. That got conflated together. Um, but, you know, in the automobile for sure. So bicycling itself became far less popular by 1900. Mm-hmm. It was the biggest thing around in 1894. 1895 because it was the fastest way to travel uh trains in a city would you know they were go slow the intercontinental or i should say the continental trains would go 30 or 35 miles an hour so they were fast but it was in the middle of the country so in a city there's no way you could go faster than riding a bicycle so it was a great form of transportation and of course by 1898 1899 1900 they not only motorized bicycles and made motorcycles out of them but also started to introduce the car. So the bicycle boom of the 1890s just started to fade away. It was no longer as interesting to watch people ride a bicycle when everybody became used to riding bicycles. You know, they became normal. So it was no longer any kind of novelty. And so it had to survive purely as a sport as opposed to as a spectacle or as an entertainment. And I think that contributed to the downfall. Um, There may be something too to the fact that the, the the novelty and the shock of seeing women as athletes started to wear off in the cities that featured the women's racing. And in fact, what, what happens over the 1898, 1899, 1900, 1901, is that the women's circuit, where they were traveling around the country, racing in different cities, they gradually started to spread out to smaller and smaller cities. So they started in Cleveland and Kansas City and Pittsburgh and Philadelphia and, and Minneapolis. And then gradually they started to go to Johnstown, New York and Calumet, Michigan, and, you know, uh, yeah. Racine, Wisconsin. And when they would go to those small cities, it was new. And so they were popular there. But now the crowds were in the hundreds as opposed to in the thousands. The, the manufacturers, too, stopped sponsoring the races because they were no longer making money hand over fist selling bicycles because everybody had a bicycle. Yeah. So now there was a huge used bicycle market as opposed to a new bicycle market. And so the manufacturers pulled their sponsorship. So now the women had to rely on the gate receipts for hundreds of people paying a dime to come in. So instead of $200 first prize, now you're talking $80 first prize. And so these women started to lose interest themselves. And as I said, they started to get a little older. So all those things contributed to the the demise of the sport. I think what what is amazing about women's bicycle racing in particular is that 
between 1902, when that era died, um, and 1958, when women's, there was the first women's championship in America, there was virtually no women's racing on, on bicycles. There was some local racing. And there was, a, in 1937, there was a girls' championship. But in terms of women's racing in America, there's a 56-year gap. And it wasn't until 1984 when it became an Olympic sport. And it was 1984 when, it, when they had a, uh, a Tour de France for women mm. um, for the first time. So that's 82 years after Tilly and Dottie and Lizzie Glaw stopped racing. I'm so glad you put it in that way because that's really what I took away as a cyclist um, reading your book or not the only thing, but one of the things is like, we've been doing this stuff a long time, you know, and, and, and what, uh, we as humans, women and men have been able to do on a bicycle. Uh, like you say, it's, it's a long time ago, but it's also not that long ago. Um, not much has changed in the last 120 years, really. So my podcast, uh, centers mostly around the endurance uh, side of cycling. Have you ever heard of the uh, Tour Divide? Uh, no. Okay. So that that one is from, uh, it's an off-road mountain bike course. Uh, you might find this interesting. It goes from Banff, Canada, all the way to Antelope Wells, New Mexico. So basically border to border. It's 2,700 miles, follows the Rockies. Um, and, uh, it's one of the most popular endurance races, if not the most popular endurance race, uh, in the world right now. And people, uh, are doing that in 14, 15 days. And, and one of the top athletes, uh, is Lael Wilcox. Um, you should Google her. Uh, and I, I've had a couple of interviews with her, but, uh, she, uh, she's like the modern day Dottie or Tilly, you know, she is going out there and, uh, and beating men, uh, competing with men. I mean, her, her objection, uh, objective is not to just win the women's category. She wants to win and, and endurance cycling or endurance sports we're learning, I think, and, and we've probably known it for a while is an, is an area where men and women become equalized because men can't use their raw, you know, power or whatever to just get a quick lead and, and, and have that carry them through in an endurance, uh, setting. It's how tough are you, uh, physically and mentally. Um, and so, yeah, just, uh, from my perspective as a, as a cyclist and endurance cyclist, reading your book, uh, and, and, and drawing those parallels and seeing how, uh, just capable they were 120 years ago was fascinating. And it's, and it's also, it's humbling and it doesn't take anything away from what the women are doing now, but it's, it's important to know that women did that in the 1890s and Two or three hours a night may not seem like an endurance race to you now, but back then to race two or three hours in an evening without stopping and racing at pretty much top speed for those two or three hours was a feat of endurance. You know, it, was, it takes amazing physical conditioning to be able to do that, especially, I mean, I'm sure many cyclists today, I, I certainly would struggle to get anywhere close. Yeah. To 22 miles an hour for three hours straight is not, not easy. And how um, so, many, and then how many miles were they lapping total in a, in a, in a six day period? How many total miles would they log? Yeah. So they would, 
like I said, they would average about 20 or 22 miles an hour. So in a, in, they would race two hours a night, 12 hours. So it would be 240, 250 miles. If they did an 18-hour race, which was three hours a night, then they'd be up around 360 or 370 miles for the week. Yeah. Um, now, there, you know, there were legitimate endurance races back then when people would go 1,100 miles or 1,200 miles in a week uh, in much larger formats. But, but these women were um, uh, completing 250 miles and averaging 22 miles an hour. And um, on... Uh... On how how heavy were their bikes? I'm gonna hold up. Uh, if you're not watching, you can't see this, but uh, this is an old uh, Daytona uh, chain ring um, that I got that would have been hopefully period correct for around 1895 or 1900 or so, uh, something similar to what Dottie would have. And this this thing is heavy. It's very heavy. Um, I can't imagine. Do you know what these bikes weighed? I I think they weighed in the in between fifteen and twenty pounds. No way, for yeah. real. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that's quite impressive. Because uh, there was one uh, Tilly had a bike that was a forty pound bike when she first started racing, and they she had kind of she remembered it as you know incredibly heavy heavy bike that she started with forty pounds, and um, they do give some of the technical details of the bicycles on occasion. And that's what I remember about 15 or 20 pounds for the bike. Okay. Now they were, they were very simple bicycles. Of course they were, you know, uh, no brakes, no, you know, single gear and, and um, uh, you know, nothing else there, so, <laughs> yeah, nothing there. And, and the tires were very light. So I don't know. I think that's about what they were. I, yeah, I always, I just assumed that they were heavier. Um, that's, that's cause I was picturing, you know, 40 or 50 pound bikes, uh, that they were lugging around, you know, between 22 to 24 miles an hour, you know, over the court. I mean, I don't care. Well, maybe top athletes, but if I got on a track right now and tried to go full out for three hours, uh, at 24 miles an hour, and I did it for six consecutive days, I'd be in the hurt locker, uh, by the end of the week, I guarantee it. <laughs> and I'm competitive. I want to win. So I'm going to be pushing it. Uh, so, uh, what, uh, another thing that I think people will find interesting is how popular cycling was in, let's say 1895. Can you put into perspective the popularity surrounding it, uh, at that time period? It was a craze that spread through the whole country. Um, it was, uh, a revolution in transportation. It allowed people to go between two towns, 10 miles away from each other in an afternoon. You could make it over there in an hour, an hour and 10 minutes. And so um, millions and millions and millions of people bought bicycles in 1893, 1894, and 1895. And it became a huge industry. Um, and virtually, uh, you know, all of the bicycle manufacturers that we remember from the 20th century, from Schwinn to um, Columbia, uh, were developed or created during that time. Um, every single town in the Every town of any size had multiple bicycle manufacturers and multiple bicycle shops to serve us all the bikes that were sold. And, um, it, and it appealed not only to men, which is what the high wheel bicycle appealed to because it was so difficult to ride, but also to women and children. And so um, when women got on the bicycle, 
it was a social revolution in that women could now ride from house to house and town to town by themselves or with a, a friend without a chaperone. And so it was a social challenge to the notion that women always rode in a carriage with the man, you know, uh, riding the horses, you know, steering the horses. Um, so it was revolutionary in that sense, um, but also it took over the country. Um, you may know that most of the auto manufacturers and plane manufacturers started off as bicycle manufacturers. And most of the technology that was used in cars and in airplanes developed out of the bicycle. So, and, and the roads too, the, the very first road movement came at the result of the bicycle. So bicyclists were the ones who said, we need paved roads. We need uh, roads that we can ride on in the spring when everything is muddy. So let's start to build a road system. And um, the irony of today is that you're saying share the road, you know, um, but <laughs> it was the other way around. When cars came in, it was, let's try to get on the road that the bicycle street. So, um, you know, kind of what comes around, comes around, you know, but. Did y'all hear that world? We were here first. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Sorry, I had to. Fact, the League of American Wheelmen, which is the, you know, the governing body of all bicycling back in the 1890s, um, basically morphed into, through various incarnations, into the Automobile Association of America. Um, and wow. a big part of their effort was to create better roads. For, and they, they had a magazine, the title of it was Better Roads. And uh, they were uh, advocates on, on a, for uh, politically for better roads in uh, municipalities. What, what's the highest uh, attendance number to a women's race? Do you know? I mean, I know it's, you mentioned 12,000 earlier. Is that the highest? That was the highest I saw. That was in Chicago in 1897, 12,000. Um, you know, the limit was the arena itself. You know, they could only jam so many people into a place. Um, uh, you know, boxing would often draw 40 or 45,000 people in the 1890s, but that was outside. All boxing matches were outside and they would build a special, you know, they would build stands for that, you know, the championship bout. Um, uh, football games, they were just starting to build um, big stadiums then. Most college games would, would get 2,500 people or 3,000 people. Um, there was a one women's Thanksgiving race in Missouri. Uh, on Thanksgiving Day, the University of Missouri played against the University of Kansas and drew 2,500 people. And that night, the two teams came to the women's bicycle race and they had 4,000. Wow. So they outdrawing the college football game. Wow. Uh, so it was a lot of people, but uh, they were limited by the, the number of people they could jam into an arena. Would people travel back then to go and uh, uh, witness these events? Was it that big of a deal or would they would just attract whoever, you know, was in the town or the area? Yeah, I think it was a local phenomenon. And another kind of fascinating dimension of this is that it was a national, it was a national sport in that everyone in the country knew about it, but it was a local sport in that the women came to you. The women traveled around and appeared in Cincinnati, and then they went to Columbus, and then they went up to Akron, and then they went to Detroit, and then they went over to Grand Rapids, and then they went down to Chicago. And so they made a circuit. And when they arrived in a town, it was the biggest news of the week. You know, everybody paid attention. Then when they were in Kansas City, nobody cared anymore. You know, it was not 
covered on a national level. They didn't, it wouldn't, you know, back then, uh, baseball, you know, the, the, um, uh, national league and the American association and the Western league would be covered in the sports pages of every town. So they knew what was happening in Minneapolis, when a baseball game was played, but for the, and sometimes with the men's bicycle racing, they would, they would cover the sports, uh, the, the races outside of town. But for the women's racing, I saw very little evidence that, um, there was some, but very little coverage of the women's sport that wasn't in town. So it was a local phenomenon. Um, but everybody got the same sport when it traveled around, so everybody got to know it. Um, That's so, interesting. So I know, um, and we haven't talked about this yet, but there was a lot of dramatics playing out in the newspapers. A lot of, you know, before the race, there was a lot of uh, uh, talks about the the athletes. And then during the race, so-and-so Dottie would say, Tilly pushed me. And there was a lot of back and forth that would create uh, a, just a dramatic effect. And I didn't realize this uh, when I was reading the book. And so each time that happened, it was a new audience, so to speak. That's right. Huh. So they were entertainers and, and the managers would, I think they pushed the women to exaggerate their, their jealousies and their competition. Um, I think it was a little bit of, you know, we're friends back at the hotel, but when we're on the track, we'll go ahead and play up our enmity uh, between yeah. each other. And um, I think they also felt competitive and they probably learned to dislike each other, just like any other people. Um, but um, there's no question that the there was a pattern to every week's race. So they would arrive in Grand Rapids on Sunday before the race. They would they have a public opening at the track to see the women practice and and so everybody could get used to oh wow that track is really something and look at these women they're in great outfits we definitely want to come to this race and then the reporters would report on that and then on monday night they would start the race and they would comment on their outfits and they would talk about the how what tilly's record was and what the record of was the fastest time for a six-day race was and they would play up the possibility of a record being set here in grand rapids and then they would uh, talk about Dottie's uh, failure to beat Tilly back in uh, Detroit when they were ra racing last week. Mm -hmm. And they would talk about uh, Tilly being from Sweden and Ida being from Norway and Lizzie being from Germany and Dottie being from America and talk about the jealousies between them for those reasons. As the week went on, people started to cheer for different individuals and they took favorites. Um, and then, of course, as you say, they would start to jostle each other. Somebody would push Dottie down and Dottie would complain and then the crowd would boo. And so they would, <laughs> would play up those dramatics. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I picture a little bit of like professional wrestling and, uh, you know, professional cyclists like they're and it's like you said, I mean, at, at first it was let's watch women ride bikes. You know, it was a novelty. And I, I get the sense that they knew that and that, you know, they were there for the money. So they'll play the role, you know, and part of the role was being dramatic and, and giving the paper something to talk about. And, and from what I understand, Dottie was one of the better ones. Uh, she was a little bit of a showboater. I take it. She was, uh, I like Dottie a lot. And part of it is because I think she, I mentioned before, she was not working class Her her family was a fairly well-to-do family from Minneapolis. And she had gone to a, a boarding school in Minneapolis or in St. Paul, really, and um, ha had 
uh, training in the theater and in dance. And so she was a relatively refined person. And I think she understood as much as anyone else that it was about appealing to the crowd. And if anything, her, her record was hurt by the fact that sometimes she would rather play to the crowd. And what I mean by that is sometimes the crowd would urge on a racer to take the lead. And sometimes in the second hour of a three hour race, it was not a good idea to be in the lead. It was better to be second or third or in the middle of the pack. And Lizzie, for example, who was always there for the money, refused to take the lead. She would always ride in the draft of the other racers and they, she would never take her turn in the front uh, to set the pace or to take the take the wind or whatever. And um, Dottie would so that when the crowd cheered for Dottie to take the lead, she would take the lead and, and they would cheer her for that. But in the end, it probably hurt her as a racer. And she came in second more times than anyone else and it was an amazing thing <laughs> i can't tell you how many times i've read your book or you know uh, i've only read the book once but how many times i was reading a, a, your account of a race and dotty lost or you know came in second you know dotty came in second i was like okay okay i get it <laughs> right and and you have to be pretty good to be in second all the time uh so she was a very good oh, racer yeah. but yeah yeah, of course, I was always rooting for her, but that, you know, yeah. history is what history is. I just want to say that she stood up for herself. You know, um, she she would complain to the referees about unfair treatment and she would uh, she but she also took it every time and came back and raised some more. So I think she was a really good character and a really good uh, uh, person for the sport. And I'm really glad she was one of those competitors. Well, thank you. I was going to ask you if you have a favorite just story or, or something that really like stuck out whenever you're researching the book, you're like, Oh my gosh, I, did you have any of those moments? Yeah. I think my favorite one actually is about Dottie and Tilly. Um, the, the in, uh, the summer of 1896, they were racing in Minneapolis and it was an outdoor race, uh, where they built a track inside of a baseball field and they had built, um, temporary stands around the track and then they had put a fence around that so they could charge tickets and it was around it was over the july 4th holiday and they had a couple of rainouts, which caused the race to uh be extended instead of finishing on saturday which was july 4th they had to extend it to monday yeah and so they had sunday off because they never raced on sundays and when they came back on Monday, uh, Tilly and Dottie were were tied for first place, and then there were two or three other racers that were behind. So it was clear that it, the race was between Tilly and Dottie, and this was Tilly's home. I'm sorry, Dottie's hometown. So there was a big, big uh, crowd in favor of Dottie to win the race. Tilly was already well established as the best racer, though, so it was going to be a tough match for the finish. So on Monday night, when they came together for the race, there were thousands of people there. There were hundreds of people outside the fence that didn't get tickets. And when they were ready to start the race, it was announced that Dottie was sick and was unable to race that day. And so the crowd started booing and was upset. And the race the manager of the race they were talking through a megaphone this is before microphones so they're talking through a megaphone and saying that um, they were going to go ahead and can, uh, complete the race tonight with no die 
So Tilly would race against the other three people. And all the crowd started to go crazy. It was unfair. It would not be interesting to watch because Tilly was clearly going to win without Dottie there. Um, and so then the manager changed their mind and said, no, we'll postpone the race. We'll, we'll come back tomorrow and finish it. But today we'll have the second, third, and fourth place people race. And the crowd was unhappy with that, too, because they wanted to see Dottie and Tilly race. And, and by the way, Tilly said, wait a minute, I'm here. Let's race tonight. I want to finish the race. Um, gradually, the crowd started to get mixed messages. They didn't know what was happening. And in the end, they started basically a riot. And they started to pull the panels off the fence, hit hit people with them. They, they stormed the box office. They tore down the building where the box office was. The women started to race around the, go around the track and people started to jump on the track and stop the women. Um, at one point, the crowd knocked out a, uh, a gentleman who attacked one of the women and carried them out of the arena on their shoulders. The outside fences broke down. The people who were outside came in. Um, this started around 8, 8, 8.30 p.m. and it didn't clear up till midnight. And the <laughs> next day in the newspaper, uh, they said it was one of the biggest riots in Minneapolis history. <laughs> all because uh, uh, Tilly or Dottie didn't show up for that race. Uh, yeah. So it shows not only the popularity of the sport, but how seriously the fans took the, the finish of the race. Yeah. I forgot about that story. I'm glad you uh, recanted it to me uh, because it does show exactly that. I mean, these people were uh, heavily invested and uh, just wanted to watch uh, a good race. That's all they really wanted, right? A good fair race was all they, they wanted to see. And of course, women riding their bikes, which was uh, a show enough, I guess. Um, is there any chance that a movie will get made of this? Well, that's a good question. Of course, you know, anybody who does research like this and writes a book like mine believes that it would be a great movie. Now, I don't think my book would be a great movie, but I think yeah, there's a story there. The settings of the arena with the wooden track and the steeply banked and the men with the megaphones and the people dressed up with their top hats. And, and I mean, they were smoking and drinking and, and the kids were sometimes through attacks on the track to try to upset the, the race. And just there's so much great atmosphere. And then to introduce the women, you have Tilly, you have Dottie. Lizzie Glaw, there we've some that we haven't even talked about. They each have their own uh, character. Um, my book is, you know, it's a work of nonfiction, and I was basing it on the articles, the contemporary articles that I read. If you had someone with some imagination and they took some liberties, it was if it was a based on story, I think they could make a terrific story. And yeah. if filmmaker were it were to recreate these tracks and to recreate the atmosphere and we haven't mentioned too that they would have an, uh, a small orchestra playing music, marches, pumping the women on through the music to try to get them to race faster. In fact, I think the manager sometimes would say, you know, pick up the music so that the women would pick up the pace, you know, and uh, that was another thing that Dottie would respond to, whereas Lizzie, for example, would not respond. You know, I don't care how fast the music's going, I'm going to race my race, you know, yeah. whereas Dottie would pick it up. But I think that would make a great movie. Um, uh, I have talked to uh, uh, some filmmakers and some documentary folks, and I think I think somebody is working on a documentary of some kind. But um, in terms of uh, feature length, we'll have to wait and see. Yeah. Well, uh, 
I would love to see one. The, the way you wrote the book, it is nonfiction, uh, but there's a great narrative uh, told throughout the whole book. Um, it, you, you do a good job of, of setting the stage of what it was like politically, socially at that time, uh, just the conditions that they were racing in. Uh, it's a great story. And I don't think a lot of people know it. I mean, me as a cyclist growing up, I mean, I've been a cyclist my entire life. And uh, I just was completely unaware that this ever even happened. You know, like you, what did you say? There was between women's racing was like 52 years yeah, or something. 50 years. Yeah. yeah something like that. Uh, so yeah, it, I, I just wasn't even aware of this and I, I would love personally to see a, a movie get made, but uh, any other books in the works for you uh, in, in the same type of vein? Did this, uh, maybe like with the men's endurance racing or anything, was there anything else that you might, you might, uh, latch on to and write about, or are you even allowed well, to talk I about think, that? <laughs> I do think that men's racing has been covered much, much better. And there's yeah. a lot more about it right now. There's a fairly strong resurgence of interest in major Taylor, who was a contemporary of Tilly's an African-American racer and um, I believe that Tilly should be recognized as the the, the female major tailor uh, breaking the glass ceiling of, of women's racing, just as he broke the ceiling for uh, African-American athletes. Um, you know, somebody should probably write a book about the men's racing of the 1890s that really focuses just on that decade. I don't think that's been done. But I think what's interesting to me, and I don't know if I'll do it, but um, the there were two gentlemen who really kickstarted the women's racing uh, of the 1890s. One is a guy named H.O. Messier, who built the tracks and was one of the original promoters of women's racing. Now, a very interesting person who had, had already been a, a professional walker, a race walker, a pedestrian in the 1870s and 80s, and then took to sports management and then kind of latched on to women's racing. And he was the one, the first one really to design a track that was banked all the way around. So the, the men's tracks generally were only banked on the ends. And so uh, for the reasons I cited earlier, he banked it all the way around, but he was able to kind of figure out that calculus that if we bank it just about just this much and we have a track this size, the women are gonna be able to fly around this track pretty well. Um, and he also came up with the format for the women's race. Uh, later, he published the, first book of sports statistics in 1902 i think 1903 and he published that book for about 10 years straight from 1902 to about 1911 or something um and i've always been interested in sports stats and i think the 19th century i think one of the appeals of baseball was that it was a sport that loaned itself to um having statistics yeah so he was a pioneer in the sense that he helped women's uh, sport and then he also was interested in statistics and then his partner at, in crime, if you will, in creating the sport was a gentleman named Ed Moulton, who they called Dad. He was a trainer. He was one of the very first trainers in university athletics in the 1880s and 1890s, worked at the University of uh, Missouri, the University of Wisconsin, and the University of Minnesota, and later became a trainer at Stanford University. He trained uh, football and baseball and track. Um, and he ended up having a 20 or 30 year career at Stanford. 
And so I, in the back of my mind, I have uh, the notion of going out to Stanford University where they have uh, his papers and see if I can find out more about these people. And I think it would be interesting to kind of write a book about these early sports managers or sports promoters mm. and who helped to create the spectacle of popular sports here in America. Yeah, I, I thought a lot about that as I was reading the book as to the mechanics of it, you know, uh, there, there's a lot going on. I mean, when you read the book, these, this is a big deal and there's a lot going on. And so how it was all orchestrated to me is, is quite interesting. So as an author, how do you decide when it's time to write a book? Well, you know, I should say I'm a I'm a writing professor at a university, so I've you know I'm busy. I'm teaching classes, I'm working, uh, and I loved writing this book. It it took a long time. I I worked on it for you know four or five years, uh, off and on during my, you know as I completed my day job. Um, in this case, it was such compelling material, and I felt like it really needed to be told. I mean, I I think as you say. As a lifelong cyclist, you had never realized that these women had this career. Yeah. And I just really think it's important for people to know about it. Um, in some ways, it's a once-in-a-lifetime thing for someone like me to come across material like that. It's unusual, you know, to yeah. find something that needs to be told so strongly. Um, so I don't know if I'll ever get that motivated again. <laughs> we'll have to see. But uh, it was awfully fun to write and I'm really happy to have done it. And I'm, I, I love connecting with people like you because um, in my research, I thought, Hey, I'll contact some relatives of these women racers and they'll be able to give me a lot of information about their relative because surely they know about them. And time and time again, I found myself informing people that they had a famous great aunt or grandmother great-grandmother who raced in the 1890s and i ended up sending pictures the alice's pictures to them and 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 sending them drafts of my chapter which would feature that that racer and um so it's just really cool for people to realize that they did have a connection to famous people and and my hope is that Dottie, lizzie tilly lizette and a couple of the other racers who are very good become known figures and that and that people like the women that you mentioned uh, are aware of their progenitors, the people that that laid the foundation for what they're doing today. Yeah. And that's really fondest hope for this book is that people um, start to that they enter into the vocabulary of people who are interested in the sport. That is very well said. And that is exactly why I wanted you to come on the podcast because uh, I think that it's important. I think it's important for us to understand where we come from and the history that we're built on and to show it the respect that it deserves, maybe. Um, and, uh, you know, genuinely, I loved your book, not just because Dottie was in it. Uh, I at first was only interested, oh, oh, Dottie's in there. Let me read. I'm related to her. What can I find out? Uh, but as I read the book, it was so much more than Dottie. Uh, I mean, it, it really opened up my eyes. And so I'm hoping that uh, people that listen to this will go out and, and seek it out and, and, and realize a re rich history of cycling in America that's been here for a long time. And God damn it, the roads are ours. <laughs> <laughs> 
That's right. Well, I agree with Patrick. It's the case. Yes, sir. Well, thank you so much for coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. All right, friends. Thank you so much for tuning in. And thank you to Roger Gillis for coming on the show. It's a fantastic book. I appreciate you sharing some of the stories here. And I hope that my listeners will go out there and pick up a copy and and read it. It's It's an amazing period in our history, especially as cyclists. There's so much that we can glean from it and pay a little bit of respect to the people who came before us and laid down the groundworks for what we have today. If you enjoyed this episode... Like always, it would mean a lot if you could go over to bikesordeath.com and find a way to contribute to the growth of this show. As we go into 2020, I got big plans and I can't do it without you. Thank you for being here. I hope you'll walk away feeling inspired by the stories of Tilly, Dottie, Lizzie, and the others. The next time that you go, ride your damn bike. You load up your bike, you ride away from home. You could be with your friends or you could be alone. You ride for a day or maybe more. You just love being in the great outdoors. Everything you need is strapped to your bars, including that new pillow you got from Santa Claus. And then you think, oh shit to yourself. You left that super lightweight tent on the living room shelf. Bikes.